This is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid with another edition of our Jewish Educators Book Club podcast. In this episode, our Director of Projects and Research, Dr. Yol Finkelman, talks with our faculty member, Rabbi Yitzchak Blau, about Martha C. Nussbaum's new book, Not for Profit, Why Democracy Needs the Humanities, published by Princeton University Press. Hi. I am sitting with Rabbi Yitzi Blau, uh, the Rosh Kollel of Shivat Shirei Torah, and as part of Atid's ongoing uh, Jewish Educators Book Club, uh, we would like to discuss with him um, a new book that recently came out by the uh, philosopher and professor of law, Martha Nussbaum, um, a leading American public intellectual. She recently published a slim volume called uh, Not for Profit, Why Democracy Needs the Humanities, uh, published by Princeton University Press as part of their series called The Public Square. Um, and uh, as part of our interest in all things Torah Umada, um, we thought that uh, uh, Martha Nussbaum's book might make an interesting lens for us uh, modern Orthodox educators to think about our own relationship to the humanities and to think about our relationship to um, things that we learn not-for-profit, um, and uh, we've asked Rabbi Blau, our other local expert on all things Tarahumada, to uh, join us for the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and its author? Sure. Uh, Martha Nussbaum is a well-known philosophy professor who's taught at Harvard, Brown, and the University of Chicago. Uh, she's written a lot about ethic, Greek ethics and emotions. She has a book on shame. And in this case, on uh, public education, it's another interest of hers. Uh, she argues that there's a growing trend in university education and elsewhere, though the focus is on higher education, towards education for science and technology, all with an eye towards the concrete results and the profit margin that emerges. Uh, she also argues that the recent economic crisis has only heightened these trends. And she argues that this is a problem that uh, good democratic citizenship and good global citizenship depends on a strong humanities education and she views this as a growing crisis that this is not being valued in the Western democracies and indeed all over the world at this point. What's, what's the connection between the humanities and democracy? Why can a physicist be a, uh, be a, uh, a good citizen? I know that the, uh, the Enlightenment authors love to question whether atheists could be good citizens, but now we're questioning whether physicists could be good citizens? Well, I, I imagine that Ms. Uh, would argue that a physicist could not be a good citizen, but that she does try to argue that uh, the humanities enhance the ability to be a good citizen. I'll just give some examples. I imagine we'll discuss the cogencies of the argument, cogency of the argument shortly. Uh, she argues that learning about the other, taking other points of view, is an important part of becoming a good democratic and global citizen, and that in a good philosophy class or in a good drama class, even in, it's interesting how much drama plays a role in the book. One learns to role play, one learns to adopt a different viewpoint. Uh, that's part of what educating towards citizenship is for her, uh, to empathize or to sympathize with the other to the, the argument, per se, the Socratic argument, the class where different views are voiced and where one's forced to rationally defend one's argument as part of uh, growing citizenship for her. She argues that this will also enable one to uh, resist authoritarian voices, to learn to question, 
these are some of the themes that she thinks uh, are why the humanities really is educating for democratic citizenship. Uh, I, I, I sometimes get the impression that this is a kind of that we've been you know, quetching about the collapse of the humanities for as long as the humanities have been around since they killed Socrates. Um, and I, I wonder whether she's really latching onto something that's culturally important, that there really is a turn toward the practical, and if it's impractical, it doesn't count, and if it's not profit-based, it doesn't count. Um, and whether, whether or not maybe this is kind of a perennial fetch. Um, uh, look, I think you, have, you make a good point. I think uh, some of her examples to prove that this is a growing trend that it, we're not fully convincing to make. Like what? I'm trying to remember uh, what were the examples. Yeah, they, were, they were so not convincing, I don't remember them. <laughs> we can skip it. Yeah, I, I don't recall the details. Um, uh, but, and I think you're right. The desire for profit out of education, one imagines, is a ubiquitous element of human history. And uh, at no point in history was everybody, uh, you know, quoting uh, Aristotle and uh, John Donne in their spare time. At the same time, I, I guess I would say three things in response to that. Uh, one, it is interesting to note that to some degree this concern has been manifest both in writers on, on the left and on the right, both liberals and conservatives. In some sense, that might make one sense that there's some, there aren't the something. Let's say if we have Martha Nussbaum representing more liberal voice and Alan Bloom with this well-known book from the end of the 80s, The Closing of the American Mind, representing a conservative voice, even though their analyses differ in a great way, there's a common commonality of a sense that humanities are not central in society as they might be. So that's interesting. I think there are some concrete examples uh, that can be traced in a more perhaps a scientific or sociological way, if you will, which is the collapse of great books courses. That again, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it was a more prevalent trend in the university setting that you had to take a great books course. Now I think you can count on one hand, I believe, the universities in America that still demand that. So that might be reflective of something. And the third thing I would say was even if you're 100% correct and there hasn't really been a change, it's, I think it's a worthwhile conversation uh, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, Machloket, if you will, between uh, Nussbaum and Alan Bloom on kind of liberal, conservative... Uh, scheme. Could you elaborate on the, I mean, she, Nussbaum is not alone uh, among those in the American Academy who are, uh, and the Israeli Academy for that matter, who are calling for a, for a serious engagement with the best that has been written and said. Um, and I get the impression that she's, she doesn't so much talk about it in the book, but that she's locating herself in a particular place on that map. And Okay, so you, you pointed out very well in our previous email correspondence we had that lurking in the book is certainly uh, some kind of identification of this humanitarian goal with a left-wing leaning politics. And uh, I think you're raising an important point because it doesn't have to be. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the contrast between Nussbaum and Bloom. Right, for Nussbaum, live education, there's a certain kind of um, polarities that she sets up. Education is about thought, not about memorization. It's about questioning authority. It's not about accepting authority. It's about ability to accept weakness. It's not about uh, demanding control. Uh, it's about introducing amount of fun or uh, playfulness into the educational process. And uh, it's about sympathy for other people's or third world citizens and the like. 
So again, I'm not against all of that, but one has a strong sense that uh, there's a certain liberal voice lurking in the background here. Not, not a lot of George Bush voters. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And that the fault, and I just realized a sharp formulation last night, the fault for Nussbaum is not in literature, but in broader trends in society, or not in humanities departments, <coughs> but in broader trends in society that are pushing the profit margin. Mm-hmm. And then if one contrasts this with Bloom, it's quite interesting. Bloom also thinks something's gone wrong, <coughs> and that humanities can be an ennobling aspect of humanity. But again, getting back to the sharp distinction, where for Nussbaum, humanities departments are fine, the problem is that people are pushing against them, Bloom locates the problem in the humanities department themselves. Right? The reason why they're not making an impact in society is in certain moves that they've made. Right? And here, meaning, so here we'll get to the conservative agenda, where Bloom would say that humanities departments have given up on a sense of the true and the noble and objective standards and a certain running relativism, which again mitigates against great books courses, works against the idea that these ideas really matter to how we live our lives. Um, he locates a lot of the problem in some of the historical background of the 60s where the students made demands and in Bloom's view the university administration constantly gave in. Like if they demanded a course in X, so we had to give a course in X, which Bloom points out the irony that this is viewed as an argument for academic freedom, but it actually was against academic freedom that uh, it's just uh, giving in to, to, to bullying as it were. So here we have this fascinating thing that both Nussbaum and Bloom had this vision of humanities as a potential source of insight and wisdom and an ennobling force. And then for Nussbaum, the problem is that society is just talking about profit. And for Bloom, is that the humanities departments themselves have abdicated their mission. Because uh, I would actually bring into the conversation a kind of third figure. I don't claim to follow the whole humanities conversation in detail, but um, a couple of columns by Stanley Fish in the New York Times uh, over the past few months in which he's taken an argument that is for the humanities, um, for serious engagement with the humanities, but it's neither Nussbaum or Bloom. Uh, he's, I mean, he likes to be provocative, especially when he's writing in the Times, but part of what he was trying to put forward was the idea that actually the humanities are useless. Um, uh, we do them because we are drawn to them as human beings, um, but try to draft the humanities either to Bloom's conservative agenda or Nussbaum's liberal agenda, uh, neither of those are really what what it ought to be about. Uh, Fish is an interesting third voice here. I'm not an expert in Stanley Fish, but just in terms of what I've seen in the Times. Uh, it's true to some degree he escapes the, um, the issues of Nussbaum and Bloom in that Nussbaum and Bloom, with all their differences, have the shared, again, vision of the great role of the humanities play, where Fish tries to deflate that, and then, as you're right, you're correct, this then uh, frees him from the political agenda issue. At the same time, I think there is something seriously missing in Fish's vision. As you said, maybe Fish is just trying to be provocative, but his conclusion seems to be, well, we really don't have a sense of any great role for humanities, but we enjoy them, so therefore we do them. Just to bring in another... Uh, since it is a Torah conversation, another relevant philosophical uh, consideration, I'm reminded of the debate about utilitarian thought, where uh, in Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism, so the goal of good deed of ethics is to produce pleasure. And one of the critiques that was raised is that there's no distinction being made between different higher or lower pleasures. Right? Is poetry better than Pushpin, is the famous quote. And then John Stuart Mill, a disciple of Bentham, who was also utilitarian, started to make those qualitative distinctions. And there are famous quotes here, uh, better Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. 
So I think with all uh, my appreciation for Fisher's trying to get beyond this Bevan Bloom, I think many of us who love literature have a sense that it somehow does matter more than playing Monopoly or Parcheesi. And that needs to be part of the conversation also. Well, I think that that's another angle that is also, um, that Nussbaum doesn't raise because her dichotomy is between profit-focused education and between kind of lofty, more noble kinds of education. But I wonder if what the humanities are losing out to is not so much the business courses uh, or the technology courses, but to Facebook and to, uh, you know, massive online role-playing games and fantasy football and all the other kind of postmodern distractions um, that, uh, as much as I'm not a big fan of the distinction between high and low when it comes to culture, uh, I think there is a place that maybe what, what, what the humanities are losing out to is, is, is um, rather than profit, which even if it's, is not a Deharshal Mabakach, it's, you know, in Kamach in Torah, and that's true of the humanities also. Um, it's, the, you know, it's, the, it's the money earners who are endowing the chairs that are paying her salary. Um, but I wonder if that's an angle that, that also ought to come into the conversation. I, I could not agree more. Um, I think that this is something that certainly affected Jewish education and certainly Orthodox education. Uh, there's been a discussion in the about the, the phenomenon of edutainment. And I think, again, it stems from some broader trends in society to our, where modern technology and media lead to shorter attention spans and uh, the need for constant stimulation. And again, certainly uh, the world of Facebook is definitely part of that world. Again, as you alluded to before, this is not to convey that once everybody dealt with the serious ideas all the time, right, there never was such an intellectual golden age. At the same time, one has a sense that even in the for, for lack of a better term, the former bastions of the deepest intellectual thought, these trends are, are making a serious inroad. And uh, I, I'm totally with you. In fact, one might actually view the profit margin as uh, superior at this point. You know, Dr. Johnson once said, there are few ways that a man can be more innocently employed than by getting a living. <laughs> and, uh, maybe uh, that's more innocent than spending endless time on the internet uh, reading foolish blogs or uh, watching YouTube videos. I, I'm also interested, you, you alluded to this before, about the role of a kind of intellectual discipline that, that Bloom, I think, focuses more than Nussbaum. For Nussbaum, I, I'm sure that she doesn't agree with this. I think that she thinks, you know, I'm sure that her graduate students have to learn the discipline before they, you know, before they write with her. But um, in her jump from the humanities to a kind of um, almost celebrating subversive kind of political culture. Um, and you also mentioned in an email conversation about the role of discipline in the humanities as, as part of the ennobling force of it. And I wonder if she misses some of that. I think it's a very sharp point and a serious weakness in the book. Uh, again, just to get into some of the polarities I said before, there's a lot in this book about drama and play but a certain work ethic, a certain sense, even of memorization. But again, I'm not such a fan of memorization education, but the argument can be made that one of the ways a culture or society conveys the text that really matter to them is the certain text that everyone's supposed to know by heart. But even in Orthodox Judaism, let's say the things we know in prayer or a certain famous psukim, where there's a sense that if you didn't have it memorized to some degree, there'd be something lacking. 
and it's something that's played a role in uh, the study of Greek, the study of Greek thought, the study of Shakespeare, and that again for Nussbaum it's all this polarity, it's about analysis and thinking for yourself and not about memorization, so I think that there's something lacking there, even in terms of the issue of authority. Maybe I'll you talk about an example from Jewish education again. Uh, again, for Bloom, I think some is, there's a great canon that things you have to know. And even if you don't understand what you have to know, you have to know them. I, well, when I was 18 years old, I had a Rebbe who learned in the mirror, who had heard from Chaim Shmulevitz, there are five ketosis you need to know not to be on the arts. I then spent the next 20 years of my life wondering if I knew the five. And I actually once gave a trip to a guy from a branch of the mirror who confirmed for me what the five are. Now I know, I, I guess I've left the category of on the arts. But, uh, I guess I haven't. Well, if you know them. <laughs> but, uh, but I told the story to my friend Rabbi Seth Farber, and it's very interesting because uh, he said to me, like, he's worried that his kids are not getting that message. Like, with all the value of his, the modern orthodox stream and the Datilumi stream of schools that his kids are in, like, are they going to hear that from somebody? That there's simply these ketosis that you need to know. Like, that's what it means to be an educated Jew. That's what it means to be a civilized human being. So that's a theme that's very common in Bloom that's a little bit lacking in Nussbaum. Again, I, I'm sympathetic to Nussbaum about thinking for yourselves and challenging authority, but the other side of the equation, what you call the discipline, which I think would include a number of things, it might include a work ethic, it might include some road memorization, it might include some sense that there's certain books you simply have to read to be an educated person, that's something that's a bit lacking in Nussbaum's book. Mm-hmm. I, I want to move things a little bit toward a bit of a Jewish angle, um, and and think about the ways in which um, this conversation about the humanities relates to or doesn't relate to two issues that are on the modern orthodox agenda. Uh, one is Torah Lishma, um, and the other is Tarahumada, for you know, lack of a better term. Now, uh, when we're talking about Torah Lishma, I think that we have to you know, stick in all the requisite Lahav bills. Um, at the same time, I wonder if there is a certain parallel between the notion of education that isn't for profit, um, learning that is ennobling uh, because the learning is ennobling, uh, not because it can earn anything for you, and between the conversation between Nostan Bloom, Fish, uh, and others. I, I definitely uh, agree with the parallel. I think part of what we're trying to convey in our Jewish education at its best is that uh, the study of ideas and the search for wisdom is a value in its own right. And to the degree that that spills over into, for lack of a better term, what happens in the afternoons in Yeshiva high schools, I think is uh, part of the general environment we're trying to cultivate. Right? I would say if in the afternoon it's all about how do I make money off this, that's going to have a negative impact on the Gemara class and the Chumash class as well. I mean, the Chumash class might have a positive impact, meaning the Torah Parnassa school will tell you. Right. That that's a great way to distinguish between Torah as Kadosh and as Lishma, and between general education, which is for Parnassa, and therefore you do it, and you have to be outside, and then you can go out and get a job. And okay, that's fair. I think we might have to create more than two categories for this, for the following reason. It's something I've thought about a lot. Sometimes the question whether something's a means or an ends is a little bit tricky to work out. For, for, let, let's, let's start as follows. Let's say from a religious perspective that Talmud Torah is an inherent value in a way that study of biology or literature is not. So that would be what you're alluding to. At the same time, I think we might still have a sense that there's a difference between reading a, a great novel for insight into the human condition and taking a course in advertising to figure out how to sell my product. 
And I think the summit has to do with there are some means that are so wrapped up in their ends, or so intimately connected with their ends, that to some degree the means-ends distinction breaks down. Like, if, for example, if I only want to know how to make money, so to some degree that, that's a pure means. But if I'm trying to figure out some insight to make me a better human being, so it's true there, you could say that's just a means. I'm only reading this novel, so I'll get the insight. But there the means is more, I would say, more intimately connected with the end. It might not be the inherent value from a halachic perspective of Talmud Torah, but I, I would not like using the phrase merely a means for that. It's like saying Jewish elementary school is just a means, because it's only so that the kids will be knowledgeable and firmer. But, yeah, but you can't use the word just in that sense. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, so how does that relate between... How, how does that lack of dis- or breaking down the distinction between means and ends relate to Torah Lishma and relate to Madalishma, if you will? Well, I, I guess I was trying to argue that to create a, create a space where Torah is more inherent, if I could use the phrase, more inherently of value, and yet there's something inherent about the value of Madalishma in a way that differs from the education towards profit. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's the middle category I was trying to carve out there. Because ah, I was, uh, in, in you know, thinking this through a little bit before we sat down, my first intuition was to link, uh, somewhat artificially, Torah Lishma to a kind of fish position, in which it's valuable axiomatically, uh, it doesn't require any, um, it doesn't require any defense, you don't have to explain that it is valuable because it serves something else. And yet, the, breaking down that distinction is important because it's not as if somebody who's sitting in the Beit Midrash and is in Aval Barishuta Torah is also a failure. There's a way in which Torah Lishma is trying to ennoble the person, you know, not just to be an Obama voter, as the case is misfound, but, but uh, something a little bit broader. I mean, I think she means something broader than that also, but... Um, yeah, I think that's so. I, I think that some of the, my breaking down the distinction would relate even to mitzvah. Let, let's take a look at mitzvah for a, se- for a, se- a, session, for a second. Let's assume we take the majority position among uh, rabbinic commentators over the ages that mitzvahs have reasons. They're trying to produce a certain impact on the world or on the individual human person. So on a certain level, you could say mitzvah themselves are just a means. Right? Mitzvah are to make you closer to God, to make you a nicer human being, uh, as the case may be. But again, I would be reluctant to say in a sense they're merely a means or they're just a means. Again, God commanded them and we view them as crucial. So again, I'm not trying to equate them with with uh, Ma Again, I think they're somewhere else on the continuum. But again, just trying to point out the fact that something is trying to produce some other result shouldn't take away, shouldn't make it somehow lesser or not as significant. It can be still something that's crucial to our sense of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. So let me try to shift the conversation a bit to the other side of the Torah Lishma now Torah Umada. The where does the modern Orthodox Torah Umada discussion fit into the discussion outside of the Torah world about the humanities? Is there are are the justifications the same? Are the explanations the same? Um, are we coming from the same place, or does the Torah before the hyphen and the Torah Mada mean that the Mada is something dramatically different? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I would just uh, maybe just make one point before I really answer your question. Perhaps one way to move things a little bit away from Nisbaum. Another thing that bothered me a little bit about Nisbaum's book is that 
you know, many people who are well-versed in humanities are pretty uh, atrocious human beings. So there should be a greater expression of the fact that this is not some kind of guarantee towards a more ennobling and moralizing force. At the same time, I think insight is helpful. I think it's really the point. I Meaning, insight can be used. You could have insight into the human condition and try to make the world a better place. And you could use your insight to torment people. I Meaning, it's, it's an insight in some ways is a tool that can be used in various ways. But obviously, the, the religious perspective should color what kind of insight we're looking for. I think, in terms of some of the things you mentioned before, I think from a religious perspective, we should try to be, figure out how to spend our time towards things that make us more productive religious people and not just uh, more lucrative religious people. Uh, getting back to the other challenge you mentioned uh, about how to be people who think seriously about things and aren't looking for easy stimulation all the time. Uh, and again, and this is a much thornier topic, to some degree we're also looking for an education that enhances our religious perspective. Which again is a tricky thing because I don't mean that you can only read voices that agree with everything you say. There's a lot to be learned from people who disagree with you. At the same time, I think, uh, and here's, again, much broader conversation, but I feel pretty strongly that uh, certain trends within the broader academic world should be more congenial to us. Mm -hmm. Those that uh, believe in search for the noble and the good, believe to some degree on uh, objective goodness or knowledge, I think these are, believe in a nobler perspective of the human being. The human being is uh, beyond biological drives. There's something... Uh, spiritual there or something morally uh, significant there. I think there are certain trends that we should be more uh, alert to. It's actually interesting in terms of the Taramata debate, if I can go on this tangent for a second. One interesting critique of Taramata that's come up in recent years is, oh, it's all true. It just has nothing to do with what's actually taught in universities today. And we have two articles where this has been expressed very nicely. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a review of Rabbi Lamb's book that appeared in Lehua, where he says, okay, I'll grant Rabbi Lamb's whole book, but maybe contemporary academic culture is anti-authoritarian, anti-truth, and so therefore it doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. This also came up in a, in a Jewish action article that uh, William Kohlbrenner wrote in response to Lichtenstein, but he also raises the same question that's very nice, but maybe no one's interested in what Milton has to say anymore. So this is something I think that really your point is well taken, where the religious community might lead to a push towards certain kinds of study in the broader world. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's also possible, as you suggest, that the drift is away from that. Correct. So one of the things I would say in response to that is, first of all, the, the university world is not one monolithic body where only this is going on and not that's going on. There are various things going on. But more importantly, now, university education is not only about what a given professor is saying. I often feel like my college education was more being exposed to certain books. In some ways, I feel like my education for Torah started as soon as I finished college. Like college, I found out what there is to read out there in the world. And when I finished college, I actually started reading it. So some of it is more what we encourage our students to read. If we think uh, for, again, I'm just going to throw out names. Not, it's just examples. It doesn't really matter. But if we think our students would get more from reading, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill and Auden and less from reading Foucault and Derrida, so let's tell them to read that. Right? It doesn't matter what happens to be given or what's the most popular course at Cornell. It might not be the crucial issue. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm also, well, one last question, and this will, will sum up. Um, do you get it? This is totally impressionistic and maybe not fair, but where do you think our students are sitting in this conversation? And sometimes I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this. Again, this is totally impressionistic just from the students who I run into in the course of my work, but um, uh, sometimes I am shocked by the level of kind of constant distractions of meaningless 
shiot. Um, and sometimes I'm struck by the fact that they really are people who are reading things that I would not have read when I was their age, uh, or involved in ideas and in causes in ways that I wasn't. Uh, where do you think our students are currently standing? Uh, in agreement, I simultaneously experienced uh, some despair that, that they're just going to be uh, checking Facebook all the time and never reading anything real. At the same time, meet students all the time who have a genuine interest and want to hear about the classics and want to discuss them. I would say on the one hand, we want to encourage that latter group of students and expand the group. At the same time, and this is something I wrote about recently, one of the weaknesses of the Terramata community might have been a certain intellectual bias. Like most of our writing over the years has been by intellectuals for intellectuals. And I think we do have to admit at a certain level that not every you know, uh, lawyer and accountant is going to be perusing Kierkegaard in their spare time. And here actually perhaps I'm going to throw in one more idea that we didn't have a chance to discuss yet. Maybe there's a third option in terms of what education is for. We talked about education towards the grand ideas, becoming a democratic citizen. We talked about education for profit. There's also education that picks up skills that enables you to help the plight of humanity. And here perhaps the sciences might even play a greater role. Right? One could learn the medical research, one could learn therapy skills that help people. I think these are also themes in education we need to be pushing where it's certainly beyond profit. At the same time, it might not be about the great books. Mm -hmm. Meaning more room for a kind of ennobling education, terminal education outside the humanities. Correct. Or ennobling education in a non-intellectual way. That's perhaps how I would put it, because it could be you know, things like therapy and social work kind of in, on the border in terms of what kind of uh, field they are. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to thank uh, Rabbi Blau for his uh, time and insight. It was always a pleasure to uh, sit down and schmooze about such topics. And uh, please stay tuned for the next uh, installment of Atid's Jewish Educators Book Club.